while you're standing, if you can grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. What rich worship we have experienced thus far. When I was away at college, got hired at a campus fitness gym. And during the training time, my boss asked me to shadow two individuals and to learn from them. And this was a huge mistake on his part. The people that he asked me uh, to follow uh, really were not worth imitating. They trained me to do the job well when he was present. But when he was absent, they set a horrible example for a trainee. I remember seeing uh, these uh, two individuals use the customer's money uh, that we made uh, to fund their own lunch. Uh, They took naps during work. They went to work out during work. And they set just a horrible example. And I wish I could say that in the beginning, I did not follow their example, but I did. (laughs) I was an irresponsible freshman, uh, taking advantage of my employer in the same way that they were. You know, we often work like the person who trained us. And I found that the same is true in the spiritual realm. We begin to look like the people who we hang out with the most and the people that we look up to the most. In today's text, Paul says something very interesting. He tells the church at Corinth to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Some translations say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I often wonder, what gives a person a right? What gives a person the goal to to look at another person and say, you follow me and watch me do what I do? Is it pride? Is it arrogance that allows Paul to say this? And I, I don't believe so. Because Paul was a man who was very in tune with his own brokenness. In Romans chapter 7, he says, when I try to do good, evil is always beside me. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls himself the chief among all sinners. So in today's text, I don't think that Paul is calling the church of Corinth to imitate him out of arrogance. I believe he's inviting them to follow his example because there's something deep going on in his life that he wants them to experience and share. If you can grab your Bibles in your hand, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. Today we are going to learn that a life worth imitating is a life that revolves around glorifying God. And I'm going to 
challenge you through this text to live for the glory of God and invite people to watch you and to join you. What you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. It is the very breath of God, written by man, inspired by God. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, matchless word of God reads, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all. Do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You may be seated. Today we want to tag this text simply, Living for God's Glory. Living for God's Glory. Again, our big idea that we want to brand on our hearts and minds, that we want to know Someone calls you at 3 a.m. and say, what did that crazy pastor of yours preach? 3 a.m., you want to say to them, he told us to live for God's glory and to invite other people in to join us and to watch us do it, and to watch us do it. Paul did not tell the church at Corinth in verse 31, I'm sorry, in chapter 11, verse 1, to be imitators of him as he is an imitator of Christ because he was egocentric or self-centered. But rather, Paul told the church of Corinth to imitate him as he imitated Christ because he was living his life to glorify God. Paul had come to a place where He knew the intent and the purpose of his life. He had a narrow focus, a singular eye. He had a heart that was devoted to to one thing, 
When you get to heaven and see Paul and you say, Paul, what was it that motivated you? What was your purpose for living as a Christian? He will look at you and say, it was to glorify God. And I glorified God, although I was imperfect, although I stumbled, although I failed at times, I lived to bring him glory. That's all of our purpose. God has designed us, made us, created us, sustained us. Some of you are alive today and you should not be. That bullet had your name on it. That alcohol had your liver in mind. That cancer had your death sentence. That situation was supposed to take you under and out, but what Satan meant for evil, God meant it for the good. Why are you still alive? Why is there breath still in your lungs? It's because God has designed you to glorify him. And if he's designed us to glorify him, then it is also our duty to give him glory. Which begs the question, What does it mean to glorify God? Paul says in verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, no matter big or small, you do it to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, in the Greek, this word glory is the word doxa. Doxa. And it it has a very uh, broad length in application. It it means to to honor. It means to acknowledge someone's prestige, their their majesty. It means to acknowledge the the weightiness of an individual, the intrinsic beauty of someone. To glory or to glorify is to show off someone, to, to spotlight that which deserves to be in the spotlight. Don Whitney, when he's reflecting on Chapter 10, verse 31, do all to the glory of God. He he says this about the verse. He says this unifying principle for all of life, including our spirituality, this is the sun around which every spiritual practice, every decision, every prayer, and everything else should revolve. What is he saying? He's saying that everything in a Christian's life should revolve around the thought, the theme, and the practice of showing off God. Not showing off ourselves, but showing off God. Andrew Murray says this, to glorify is to remove every hindrance, to reveal the full worth and perfection of the object, that its glory is seen and acknowledged by all. I'm going to say that again. He says to glorify is to remove every hindrance, to reveal the full worth and perfection of the object that its glory is seen and acknowledged by all. He's saying when we glorify God, we are removing any obstacle that would stand in the way for people through us seeing how dope he is, how good he is, how sweet he is. 
how marvelous he is, how wonderful he is, how immutable he is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a, a work that the early church wrote in order to memorize special truths, says this. They start the catechism, the, the teaching, by saying, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this. Man's chief end, man's main purpose, man's greatest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the, the bigness. That's the sum of our life. So when Paul says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, he is saying that that is your purpose. That is when you will be most fulfilled. That is what God created you for. It's your duty. Now, how does that look in everyday life? To glorify God, to show God off. And, and more importantly, what does a message like this have to do with my life? Because after all, in the everyday hustle and bustle of life, there, there is, is pain and, and brokenness. How does glorifying God help me to deal with my common everyday experiences? How does glorifying God help me to deal with the fact that I'm living check to check? How does living to glorify God help me to deal with the fact that I come from a, a broken history and a broken past and a, a broken family and I have broken dreams? How does glorifying God fulfill me? And the answer is this, is that it's when we see God's glory, when we see his weightiness, when we see his majesty, when we see his beauty, we begin to understand that if we are in him, if we are under the shadow of the almighty, then we in the heaviest and darkest of storms have a refuge. And in the midst of living check to check, in the midst of a broken marriage, in the midst of parenting issues, in the midst of having unfulfilled dreams, there is a deep joy because there is a, a beauty that is set before us that moves us through the storm. And there is a promise that one day, there we will behold a, a beauty, we will behold a savior, we will behold a God that will not only wipe away every tear, but whose majesty and weight and intrinsic worth will allow us to say this light momentary affliction does not compare to the beauty that is to be revealed. In other words, when we get to heaven, one day we'll say, that stuff seems small in compared to how good he looks. Lord, if only I had known how beautiful you were, I wouldn't have stressed out the way I stressed out. Lord, if only I had known that you looked this good and you were so colorful and so radiant and so, so mighty, God, I, I, I wouldn't have worried like I did. I wouldn't have toast all night. He said, Challenge, that's all right. That's all right. I still love you. You're still here. And I'm here to wipe away every tear and everything that would cause you to tear. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he is saying, yo, listen to me. Church, you all are centering your life around things that really don't matter. What you need to do 
It's to become God-centered. Center your life around me. When we center our lives around things and people other than God, we can become broken to a point where we feel that we're beyond repair. But when we center our lives on God, there is deep strength. Now, we know that Paul has been targeting Christians who, they're very smart, they're extremely talented, but Paul says that they lacked love. He's writing to stronger Christians, those who are really smart, and they're saying, you know, we have been given these freedoms. What What does he mean by freedoms? He means there are some morally neutral things that we can do because they are not a sin. And they're saying, since these things are morally neutral, we can do them as we please. And Paul's been writing them saying, just because you have the right to do something, it doesn't mean that it's best. It doesn't mean that it's best for you, and it doesn't mean that it's best for the people of God. So he is writing the church of Corinth and he is targeting those who are very knowledgeable. He's saying, you are causing weaker Christians to stumble. And you're causing weaker Christians to stumble because you are not living for the glory of God, but rather you are living for the glory of self. And it's easy to live for the glory of self because the world tells us that we should live for self. Because our flesh wants self to be glorified, self to be on display. Because we have an enemy, Satan, that old accuser who delights in seeing us fall and, and have our lives revolve around self. But Paul is saying, God is worth pursuing and putting in the center of our lives. That's really what the Christian life is about. It is about glorifying God. And it's difficult. It's hard to live for the glory of God and not ourselves. It takes a a whole new approach. So Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 2, he said the, the, the Christian life, he says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, living with this kingdom of gender, of having God in the center of our lives, it is a sacrifice. It's not always easy. He says in order to do that, you have to have a renewed mind, a renewed perspective. So what does it mean to live for the glory of God? Because only when we live for the glory of God do we have the right to tell people to imitate us and follow us as Christians. There's one major thing I think Paul means, and this is this. When Paul says live for the glory of God, he means live sacrificially to build other people up. Live sacrificially to build other people other people up. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to glorify God. It means to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. It means to live with an intentionality, live with a discipline, live with Uh, A mindset that is willing to make sacrifices for others. 
We pick this up in verse number 23. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And that's what Paul is getting at, to to glorify God as we kind of reverse and look at the beginning of this passage. To, To glorify God means that you are not doing things just because you can do it, but you're doing things because you want to be used by God to build up. You want to be used by God to build up his kingdom. You want to be used by God to build up other brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to be used by God to to build up people who do not know Christ. This word, build up, is the same word that Jesus uses on a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he talks about a man who built his house on a solid rock. It's literally a picture of someone who is building a house. To glorify God means to join God in helping build people up spiritually. That's how we glorify God. That's how we remove obstacles from the world so that they can see the beauty of God. It's to build them up. Let's walk through the text quickly. It says, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. When we are living for the glory of God, we are living for the good of our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Everybody's our neighbor. We're living for the good of people who don't look like us. We're living for the good of people who don't talk like us. We're living for the good of people who are in a different economic, social economic status. We're living for the good of people who hold different political views. We're living for the good of that coworker that taps on our last nerve every day. We're living for the good of that sibling who's always in rivalry with us and who we can't agree on uh, the color of ketchup with. We are living for the good of others. Why? Because Christ lived for the good of us. Paul tells the church of Corinth, if we are going to glorify God, it is because we are not living self-centered lives, but God-centered lives. God-centered lives. Look as he continues, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he's talking to the Christians again, and they had an issue with, with meat. If meat, uh, meat was taken to idolatrous temples, they were uh, taken to this place where people were worshiping false gods. And some people had an issue with that because most of the meat then was taken from the temple and sold in the local markets. And some of those who were more knowledgeable in God and his word, they knew that it was okay to eat that meat. Because in eating that meat, they weren't worshiping that God. Nothing bad was going to happen to them. But for others, they had a huge issue with eating this meat. Because they believed that by eating in this meat, they were somehow participating in the worship of false gods. But Paul is saying, no, glorifying God means that you understand that you do have freedom in Christ. You do have freedom in Christ. You're not bound. You're not bound. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of consciousness. So he's saying live to build other people up. If you go to the house of someone who is not a Christian, he says, feel free to eat whatever they place before you and let your conscience be clear. And he stresses unbelievers. Why? He's saying, because at the end of the day, Christian, when you stand before an an unbeliever, you want to do, as Andrew Murray says, you want to remove any obstacle that will stand in the way of them knowing Jesus. So he said, when you go to their house, don't be picky about what you eat. If your conscience allows you, eat the food that is placed before you. And this is just a pause for those who haven't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I just want to point out here that the Bible speaks to Christians quite often, telling us how we should live before you. Because God wants you to come to know Jesus Christ. The Bible often tells us that we should live in a way that makes sacrifices for you and that removes obstacles out of the way so that you would come to know Jesus, so that you would come to know why God has designed you, so that you would live for his fame to show him off and not yourself. But I want to admit to you, brother, I want to admit to you, non-believer, that sometimes, many times we fail. We fail. Many times we don't make the necessary sacrifices so that you would want to follow Jesus. And and we want to say, for the times that we do that, we apologize. And the Bible has a word that it uses when it talks about Christian. It's the word disciple. So even as you think about maybe the time that a Christian turns you off and you say, this is a stumbling block for me following Jesus, I want you to hear what Jesus calls us. He calls us disciples. The word disciples means a learner. Which means that we as Christians, we admit that we do not have it all together and we still have a lot to learn. But the difference between us and you is this, is that God is going to teach us. And as we live and trust Jesus more and more, we're going to look more like him. And we're going to learn to make sacrifices for you so that you won't be hindered in seeing Jesus. Paul here addresses the church at Corinth. He says you need to be willing to make sacrifices so that those who do not know Jesus, so that they would come to know Jesus. There's a friend of mine who is a a pastor at a a local church, and he told me a, a beautiful story about how he and some of the members of the church was called to go to into a local school and to do some mercy ministry, to feed people and to, to minister to people who were in need. And he said that as they finished up feeding people who were in need and, and taking care of uh, people who many did not know Jesus, that the principal of the school came up to them and they said, hey, I need you guys to follow me. And the group was tired. It was a long day of meeting the needs of people, but they said, yes, we will follow you. And the principal walked them to a bathroom and stopped. He said, this is what I need you all to do. I need you all to clean up our restrooms because our restrooms are filthy and we don't have anyone who is willing to clean them. A pastor looked at him, a friend looked at him, and he said, yes, sir, we'll do it. 
The rest of the group, as the principal was speaking, began to roll up their sleeves and get ready, ready to clean some dirty toilets, to which the principal moved and almost in tears looked at the group and says, I was just kidding. The reason I brought you here is because I heard in the community that you all was willing to do anything for the community because you love Jesus, and I wanted to see, was it true? Paul is telling the church at Corinth that when we set our hearts on God, a God-centered heart is a heart that is saying, for the sake of God, because I've experienced his grace, because I've experienced his beauty, I am willing to make sacrifices so that other people would come to know Jesus. So he says, church at Corinth, when you are eating in front of non-believers, don't be picky. If they're feeding you, eat what they give you so that you don't become a stumbling block to them knowing Christ. We're called to glorify God by living sacrificially to build people up. When we do that, people are inspired. They're saying, ah, something about you. You're not like everybody else. I want to know what it is. It's important that we realize that in this text that God wants us to enjoy our freedoms, but he doesn't want us to worship our freedoms. God wants us to enjoy life and being able to do things as Christians. He hasn't called us to be stoic and and boring and and pale and, and dull. He's called us to be vibrant and called us to enjoy all of creation. But he's called us to restrict ourselves when it's going to help someone else. The text continues. He says in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of their conscience. So he's saying, if you're out to eat, with an unbeliever or even a believer, and someone says to you, hey, don't eat that meat. It has been sacrificed to idols. He's saying, make the sacrifice, and in front of them, don't eat. And he continues. And he says in verse 29, Now I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And he's making it clear that you are not going to refrain from eating this because all of a sudden you believe that it's wrong. He's saying, no, you have have freedom in Christ. You're going to refrain from eating this meat in front of them because it's going to tear their conscience. And they may feel pressure to eat and sin against their conscience. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter, I believe, 14, he says, anything that is not done by faith is a sin. So when we call someone else to pattern after us and to do something that we're doing, and in their mind they feel guilty and condemned for doing it, he says we are calling that, causing them to sin. And God has a problem with that. Why does God have a problem with that? Because God cares about the weak, not just the physically weak and the physically poor, but he cares about those who are weak in conscience, which shows that we serve a compassionate, a merciful God who has sent us on mission to be extremely sensitive to the needs of those around us. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is sensitive to our needs? All right. 
So we continue. Look at your Bibles. Verse 30. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. Paul says, whatever you do, he says, look, do it for God's glory. When you're at work, work for God's glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, work wholeheartedly, not as unto man, but as unto the Lord. And the Lord will repay you. And as man pleases and as people pleases, sometimes we can do things because we want to be loved and accepted by man and by people. But God is saying, no, do things out of knowing that you have been already accepted by the person who matters most, me. Whatever you do, do it to honor God. Do it to show off his prestige. Do it to show off his beauty. Do it to show off what he has done for you. Let the crucifixion, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus motivate you to do everything in your life to show off what he's done for you. He says even when you eat, when you cook, don't cook so that people can say that, oh, look how great of a cook you are. He says, no, do it for the glory of God. When you work out, don't work out so that people can see your muscles and be drawn to you. No, do it for the glory of God. Say, look, I'm working out because God has given me this body and I should take care of this body so that I can live a long life and have more energy to do for the kingdom of God. He says, do it for the glory of God. And here's the thing, you will learn and we will discover, we will see that when we do things for the glory of God, it is way more fulfilling than doing things for our own glory. Because when we do things for our own glory, we become selfish we become egotistical, we begin to break things, we begin to think that we have it all together, we get the big head, and we weren't created to be worshipped. We weren't created to be glorified. We can't handle the light that God has created for himself. We were created to reflect light, not to receive it and hog it unto ourselves. Perhaps you don't have joy. Perhaps you are constantly worried and anxious. Maybe it's because you are living life for your own advantage, for your own glory, and not for the glory of God. Because when we live our lives for God's advantage and God's glory, we will learn to be less sensitive about whether or not someone praised us and said good job, or whether or not they forgot and skipped our name. Because it's not about me. Amen? Let me give you real quick two practical things outside of build, living to build up others to bring glory to God. Two practical ways that every day we can glorify God and then invite people to join us. Two very simple ways. The first is cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. We can glorify God every day by cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Psalm, 
says this. The psalm says this. Psalm chapter 50, verse 23. Listen to what it says. You can turn your Bibles there. The A clause says these words. Got butterfingers today. Amen. says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. When we are offering God thanksgiving, it shows off God. When we are living at home, at school, at work, with a grateful heart, it makes people want to know why we are so thankful. And sometimes that, that means that we are, uh, are, are sacrificing and giving thanks. Sometimes that means that when our boss or our coworker is doing things to make life very inconvenient for us instead of grumbling, are still being able to give God thanks. As Paul says, give God thanks in all circumstances. When, when the world sees us living with a heart of thanksgiving, they want to know why we are so thankful. Why do you smile so much? Why, when you, it seems that your world is crumbling, are you still thankful? Why, when the, when the boss takes you to the, the nth degree and goes back on their word. You don't grumble like us and gossip like us. Why is it that you always are finding the good in a situation and then you can point to God who is in heaven? You can point to a God who is in heaven. Jonathan Edwards says, the glorifying of God is nothing but rejoicing in the manifestations of you say, how can I glorify God in a situation when things aren't going well? It's because you can focus on how he has revealed himself to you. You can focus on how good he is. Second, it's by doing good works. It's by good, doing good works. We, we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. As Paul is telling the church at Corinth to, to live sacrificially for others. They are able to do that because they are thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for them. But the second way is by doing good works. Isn't, isn't in essence, that what the church of Corinth is doing here? When they meet with an unbeliever or when they meet with other Christians who have a bad conscience, aren't, aren't they doing good works? Yes, they're doing good works. They're doing good deeds. Why? To glorify God in heaven. And that's exactly what Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 teaches us. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works. But what? Sunday school meets next Sunday at 930. Let your light so shine that men see your good works in what? Glorify your God in heaven. Doing good works puts God on display. And we, as a church, we must be intentional about doing good works. It's not something that we need to just be passive about, but we need to plan good works. 
We need to go into the work area today saying, I am going to do good works. We need to pray to God and say, God, reveal to me the good works that you have set before me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, as his workmanship, as his poema, we know that he has ordained good works for us. We glorify God when we actively pursue to do good, to build up those around us. So maybe for some of us who have a little more cushion in our budget, or maybe who, who don't, but, but, but maybe you could put up $5 a week for six months in order to bless a family that you know that's struggling. Maybe it's a coworker and you know that they are barely getting by to, to feed their family of six and you and your wife or you and a, another friend come together and they say, hey, what would it look like for us to make sacrifices for the next six months? To save up $500 and to give it to that couple and say, why don't you and your wife go and treat yourselves to a vacation? We do it not to receive honor and glory for ourselves, but to show off a God who graciously and freely gave to us, though we did not deserve it. It's the last time you had a coworker over or a neighbor over just to eat and to have dinner? What does it look like for you to finish your work early so that you can help a coworker who doesn't know Jesus complete their task? Paul is saying, as Christians, we have been called to show off God, and we show off God by sacrificially living, by giving up comforts and things that we have a right to in order to minister to others. That's a life worth imitating. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And what is he saying? No, he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow the example that Christ set to glorify the Father. Because that was what Christ was all about. It was glorifying his Father. Luke chapter 2, the angels couldn't get enough of Christ in heaven, so they came to earth, and their first words is glory to God in the highest. Why is it glory to God in the highest? Because there is now peace on earth through Emmanuel, and he has come to glorify the Father. John chapter 12, John chapter 13, John chapter 15, John chapter 17. Jesus says clearly that he has come to glorify the Father. John chapter 15, he says, abide in me and I in you so that you may glorify God and bear much Fruits. We glorify God because Jesus glorified God with his life. Paul is saying, follow me. I didn't just make this stuff up. Follow me. Jesus lived this way. Follow me as I follow his example. Oh, and I'm so thankful for his example. Because as a result of his example, as a result of him sacrificing his life, as a result of him living life with thanksgiving, as a result of him doing good works, I now have life. You now have life. I now have peace. You now have peace. I have now been justified. You have now been justified. I now have a hope in the future. You now have a hope in the future. I now have a new family. You 
You now have a new family. I now have victory over sin. You have victory over sin because Jesus did not stay in that grave. But my Bible tells me on the third day, he got up with all power in his hands. And I praise God because when I fail to glorify him, I'm not condemned. When I fail to glorify him, I'm not sentenced to hell because the wages of sin is death. When I fail to glorify him, all I got to do is look up to heaven and say, Lord, have mercy and help me to walk the walk you walked, to talk in a way that you talk, to live in a way that you live, to praise Jesus in a way that you praise so that men may glorify our Father in heaven. So glad that Jesus is not only our pattern, but he's our pardon. I'm so glad that he's not only our pattern and our pardon, but the Bible says that he is our power. We don't glorify God in our own strength, but we glorify God in the strength that the Holy Spirit gives. I can't conjure up enough good in me to live sacrificially for others. But as we sit at the feet of Jesus, as we feast on his word, as we enjoy him in prayer, as we come to church on a Sunday morning, the Bible says that he begins to commune in us and stir up some stuff in us so that we can go out to a dying world and tell them about a living Savior. I'm so glad that he's alive. We serve a good God, don't we? We serve a gracious God, don't we? We serve a merciful God. To him be glory, dominion, and power. From this age and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being a gracious God. We thank you for being a good God. Help us to glorify you to center our life on you, not on ourselves, not on the praise of man, but to see that you are far more beautiful and far more worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.